0: This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Katherine Cruz. Hospitality workers are finally getting priority for the vaccine as more visitors are arriving across the state. This Saturday, more than 20,000 visitors touched down to enjoy spring break in the islands. We talked to Mufi Hanuman, former Honolulu mayor and head of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association, this morning about how things are going with the vaccine rollout at this point in time.
1: We've tried to make the case to the state that hospitality workers ought to be prioritized. We're essential, we're critical especially if you talk about opening up the economy, um, you know, that's where they're going to stay. The majority of them are going to stay at the hotels. And we wanted to make sure uh, that after the airlines, because the airlines have been able and folks that work at the airport have been prioritized early on, we wanted to follow. So we're very pleased uh, that we got word that this past Monday uh, we were going to start rolling out the process where in tier uh, 1C, uh, we would be uh, prioritized. Now, of course, it's 65 to 69 years old. I want to make that clear because I don't want any kupuna to feel that we're cutting in front of them, but that would always be the priority. When it comes to the workforce, uh, the health department, Department of Health, Dr. Libby Char, her deputy, uh, Kathy Ross, and indicated uh, to myself at uh, HLTA and John DeFries of HTA, a series of ongoing meetings and discussions. Uh, that the hospitality workers would be prioritized, and first and foremost, they wanted those that work at hotels, restaurants, and bars. Uh, With the um, increase now in travel that uh, we were seeing uh, or anticipating and now we're seeing during the spring travel, uh, as well as the fact that, you know, great concern about um, community spread occurring perhaps at restaurants and bars and the like, whether they're part of a hotel or not, uh, we wanted to take a proactive step, uh, to try to get in front of this issue here. So this Monday, past Monday, uh, the 15th, uh, is when, um, all systems will go. Uh, we've made it real clear through communications to all the hospitality workers. And in fact, prior to that, we we're already telling our hotels, get your lists ready, get your lists ready. Cause as soon as the department of health tells us, uh, it's time to go, uh, we're ready. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, very pleased that many of our workers have been able to get uh, their shots on the day that they made their appointment. Several called me and said, my goodness, it's working. And I called, this is Monday. Uh, I checked uh, and uh, went online and they said, come in this afternoon, we can take you. And the four healthcare uh, operators that uh, are, everyone could register with is uh, Adventist Health Castle, uh, HBH, Hawaii Pacific Health, Queens, or Kaiser. And there's two ways Of registering, either you can do it individually uh, and um, go online to do that, or uh, you, uh, if you're part of a company and there's a human resource manager, they could compile all the names and do that for all the employees. And then the other one is that you could send us your list of employees, uh, and that we in turn would transmit it to uh, the Department of Health, and then they would work with uh, one of the healthcare uh, providers uh, to uh, healthcare operators to get you uh, a place for you to get your shot. And uh, the only disadvantage of doing that is if you do it individually, uh, you have a choice of who you'd want to go and make your appointment with one of the four that I mentioned. If we give it to the health department, they're going to designate uh, that place for you, and then all the employees that the list that are on the list will have to go to that one site.
0: Well, they are opening up more mass uh, vaccination clinics. Uh, Queens West just announced Kaiser uh, says they're doing one on Maui next week and that they've got other ones already, you know, they're finalizing. So, you know, we know that the the Guard has said that they're ready to step up if asked by the counties to help out at any mass sites. And it all depends on the supply, how much we get. it all
2: depends on the
1: supply. And, you know, uh, let's be clear, in the case of the counties, they actually had a head start before Uh, March 15th. uh, And we know that's happening, but we didn't want to say to our hospitality workers on Kauai, Maui or Hawaii Island where they were moving much more rapidly. Obviously, they don't have as many people as Oahu that uh, if the mayor and the Department of Health, there were ready uh, to accommodate you uh, to schedule your uh, vaccination and go ahead so we've had a running head start, if you will. Uh, on the neighbor island, but for Oahu, definitely everything started uh, this past Monday. Every every program, when you roll it out, that's, that's new or mm-hmm. or for for the user, you know, there's always going to be some glitches, and hiccups, what have you. But you know, I found the Department of Health, especially Kathy Ross, the deputy director, has been heading up efforts and in interfacing with myself and uh, HLTA. You know, they they've gotten to it right away. They've they've tried to. Um, assuage our concerns and the like and in fact this afternoon uh, from 2 to 3 we have a webinar uh, that's going to take place with Kathy Ross uh, and it's open to our general managers of the hotels, the human resources people Uh, also um, both Local 5 and ILWU have been invited uh, to attend and participate. Basically now we'll be just kind of asking answering questions if you will. Uh, When we had scheduled those webinars we didn't have a date when we open up, so it was going to be basically, you know, walking us from A to Z. But this one is going to be a fairly uh, direct uh, type of uh, and much more, much more focused type of discussion because people now can start registering. And so we can we can basically get to questions that people say, well, I'm still having a problem. i really like to go to Kaiser. I can't get through, or, or Queens, or what have you. And uh, Kathy Ross would navigate us through that. Now, from 4 to 5, uh, we're ex- Going to have another webinar and that's for uh, those members of the hospitality industry um, that are not being covered in the initial phase as a priority so those are those who work at attractions um, ground transportation um, you know those those types of uh, uh, tourism related businesses uh, will then be uh, part of, of that discussion many retail uh, places um, that like uh, have a, a lot of tourists as part of their clientele. Um, those are the, the that's the next phase of priority. Once we move past hotels, restaurants, and bars, uh, as uh, I uh, instructed by the uh, Department of Health, which is what their focus is.
0: Okay. Uh, and so, so uh, those folks that are interested in, in finding out more can uh, jump in on those webinars today.
1: Yes, and then yeah, here's the other thing too. If you're not working, uh, and and you're still being furloughed as you know, whatever your business establishes bringing you, bringing you back as, as demand warrants, go ahead and register. Don't wait. Um, there, there's nothing to prevent it. You know, as all you, you you say that um, and you can identify yourself as a employee at a hotel, you know, a particular restaurant, or, you know, what have you, uh, go ahead. I would say go start registering yourself now uh, because, um, you know, the idea is to, to – have as many of our hospitality employees all vaccinated, and we're hoping the supply continues the way that it's been coming in. We now know that the Johnson uh, vaccine is available. That's the one shot, as opposed to Pfizer and Moderna that requires two shots. Uh, chances are uh, you'll also be able to, to get your shot uh, fairly soon.
0: And uh, Mayor, you did uh, also this week attend the uh, safety conference in yes. Waikiki. Uh, was this part of the whole uh, safety or, or was it more focused on crime?
1: Uh, no, we, we had a major significant portion of it that dealt with COVID-19 uh, and everything that we're, uh, we've been talking about uh, with respect to how, the steps we have taken uh, to ensure that workers in the workplace were being protected as well as the community itself and then, of course, uh, measures uh, to ensure that whoever is traveling uh, to Hawaii Uh, would have to go through uh, several steps and the like and so we had um, lieutenant governor josh green that led a very uh, stimulating panel discussion along with general hara who heads up haima and uh, dr philip hankins uh, that um, uh, was a interesting exchange because we talked about now that uh, visitors are coming in uh, perhaps uh, and i think this is more than wishful thinking at this point there's a lot of support now to have the vaccination uh, be the key for you to not have to quarantine Uh, once uh, you get a vaccination card. We'd like to see that happen first with inter-island travel, eventually with Transpac travel, and then later with international travel. There's a lot of momentum building towards that goal, and there's some prime proponents uh, like Lieutenant Governor Green uh, that um, we've been working with, and obviously in the industry, makes a lot of sense to us because it will reduce the confusion of, you know, the tests that you have to do to come here and so forth. So having said that, I also want to be clear. There are people that, because you can't force everyone to take a vaccination, uh, so therefore uh, there will always be a pre-testing requirement, I believe, in place because we don't want uh, anyone uh, having to come here where we cannot be assured to some degree that they're a healthy traveler reduce uh, all the risk that we would take of uh, someone coming in with the virus. Now, what we do know is this. Um, as much as we would like sometimes in our community to point fingers at visitors that visitors are bringing it here, we still know there's a significant amount of local residents uh, that we have to be concerned about who will go to the mainland, uh, and then they will not uh, have to take a test, as we all know, to come back to Hawaii. And so they'll just... Uh, you know, automatically say in their minds perhaps sometimes, I'm okay, I don't feel any symptoms, I'll just go home and I'll, and I'll quarantine, uh, and so forth. So we know uh, in conversations with our health experts that some of them, uh, unbeknownst, are, are coming back with the virus, and that's causing some of the concern in the community spread. So this is something that we all have to keep in mind going forward, that we have to do our part. If we are interested in getting this economy going and if it affects us personally, trying to get back to work, uh, or our family, our loved ones, what have you. Uh, We can't let down our guard about masking, social distancing, and also making sure that uh, we we also get tested. And in this particular case, if you can and you're willing, go get vaccinated. That's the best mechanism to guard against variants as well as protecting ourselves and the community at large.
0: It's great that that the vaccines are being rolled out, uh, but I'm sure this just makes it all the more difficult as far as enforcement when it comes to quarantine or, or, you know, safe travels, that kind of thing.
1: Well, hopefully, um, you know, because now you get a card that says that you have been vaccinated. So if we are going to go and have vaccinations be the order of the day, if you will, in order to travel, uh, inter-island uh, and, and like, um, you know, there has to be a a, a better uh, way of uh, uh, identifying people that have truly been vaccinated, so that you don't have any fraud taking place there. So that really is a government initiative that uh, we would fully support. Obviously, this is going to be around us for for quite some time, but we do know now that there's some real hope and optimism around the corner as. Industry is seeing uh, a lot more people uh, come back now, especially during spring break. And spring vacation also, you know, it's not just this week, it's also next week. So we'll continue to see this steady flow. So it's important as we're experiencing an uptick in visitors. Now, uh, Saturday, it was a a record high for over a year of 21,000 that actually came in uh, to to Hawaii. And this week, it's like 14,000, 15,000 a day. Great improvement from what it was before We want to make sure that nothing happens to the extent where cases come out and everything starts to shoot up again, that government will will pause and and therefore take us back where we don't want to go again, which is basically to protect the interests of health and safety, that we have to shut down businesses again. That's what we don't want to see.
0: That was Mufi Hanneman talking about the vaccine rollout among our thousands of hospitality workers across the state.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Others, an exhibition of isolationist-era Japanese prints that considers the importance of cross-cultural understanding. HonoluluMuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Dr. Brandt Courtright, author of Holistic Healing for Anxiety, Depression, and Cognitive Decline. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how to strengthen your brain for optimum
3: mental health. Beginning Sunday morning at eleven.
0: The community at Maui Memorial Medical Center gathered on Monday night for a candlelight vigil to acknowledge the anniversary of the pandemic. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pope spoke with two healthcare workers, Elizabeth Lenaris and Lemomi Melamai, who attended the ceremony. It began with the sound of conch shells blowing 35 times, once for each life lost to COVID 19 on Maui.
4: Liz Lanaris and Leimomi Melamai haven't gotten much rest in the past year. They both work at Maui Memorial Medical Center, and the pandemic turned their lives and the lives of their families upside down. This week's vigil offered them a rare moment to pause and reflect. We start with Liz.
5: I, I did not expect this at all. I remember when I was hearing Dr. Fauci <coughs> in last year about, you know, at our worst, we're going to have 200,000 that I remember the day that we have a first case here in our hospital. And I remember the panic that went through the entire hospital. But I never in my life would have thought that I was still wearing a mask and that I am now fully vaccinating and still um, ordering people to quarantine a year later. The toll that he has taken on us has been incredibly hard especially for the nurses that are working on the floor. Being a COVID unit, the restriction on your outfit is so big, your face hurts, you can't talk. You can't talk louder enough because you're already tired from talking when you have the N95s on. I will leave the hospital, wash my hands, get in my car. I will bleach the entire car inside, like the steering Well, everything. Then I will go home, I will carry bleach wipes with me. I will take my shoes off, and I will bleach my shoes. I ensure that I even change my style because I said I have to be able to wear shoes that I can bleach. So I bleach my shoes. Then I will go to the back. I will take all my clothes out over there, and then I will jump in the bathroom. I had to go that extra mile. And to know that I have to do it again the next day was exhausting.
4: Momi, I'd love to hear you. Speak to that, speak to some of what Liz talked about, about the the culture that you had to develop and the teamwork, but also I'm sure the physical exhaustion.
6: So on on that note, I I agree with Liz. Uh, I wear a face mask in my own home, my family and I social distance from our relatives and friends. The COVID pandemic has affected our culture. You know, here in Hawaii, when we see our relatives and friends, we kiss and hug, we share food, we gather. We desire to lovingly embrace one another, but out of respect and knowing the only way to keep our loved ones safe, we restrain ourselves. Does this make me not want to care for COVID patients? No, of course not. You know, it's it's okay to have, um, you know, these uncertainties in my thoughts, and um, but recognizing the importance in setting these thoughts aside when I'm caring for COVID positive patients and PY and treating them as we would have, as I would have done unto my own family member. As a nurse, I'm, I know that I'm replacing that family member for that patient. Prior to this pandemic here on Maui, our patients were allowed to have at least one family member or friend at their bedside. But now, whether you are COVID positive or not, visitors are not allowed. My Uncle Kanilo Kamano recently said it perfectly when his brother, brother-in-law was hospitalized just last month. He said, hope is the best medicine, and holding a loved one's hand administers that medicine. And that that right there touched me. And my, my heart just aches because I know I know that every nurse, you know, every every um, medical staff member, we we believe the same thing. We we can we put ourselves in the patient's shoes. I I treat every as if they're my own family members, and I try to be that um, hope for them. Now that there is the COVID vaccine out, I, I hope these things go up from here, even if it's just being able to allowed, be allowed to have one family member or friend with us at the hospital to administer that medication of hope.
4: I just want to ask, if you don't mind, have either of you experienced a personal loss during the pandemic?
6: I haven't.
5: I have. And um, in Puerto Rico, I had what we call here a Hanai mother. She was very important to me. And um, my father was also sick, so I had to go to Puerto Rico and she passed away due to COVID. and. It was really hard because I was dealing with the stress of my dad. And when um, we had our vigil and we were standing with the candles where Kimokero was doing the honor for the victims that passed, I must say that that was the first time I was able to grieve for her. It was the first time I took a moment and started grieving for her. And I had a moment of shocked dead. I don't know how I, how I kept it all together. How we, as nurses, have this ability to care for our life, because that's our job, while um, keeping our emotions in check. And so that vigil gave me a pause to feel and experience her death. And be mad at COVID. That was the first
0: time. That was Maui Memorial Case Manager Liz Zanaris and Nurse Lemomi Momi reflecting on the trials of the past year. They both participated in a candlelight vigil in Maui County this week, and Kahukimo Keo Keo Kapahulihua led the conch ceremony. We wasn't the only community to mark the anniversary. Savannah also checked in with the neighborhood in Manoa. Eight, seven,
3: six, five, four,
4: three, two, one. You're listening to a handful of neighbors who meet outside their houses every night at seven on the dot. To cheer on healthcare workers fighting the pandemic, the voice you heard counting down was longtime resident of Manoa and retired nurse Stephen Scott Hosaka. He started this tradition over a year ago. It just seems
3: to help. <laughs> it's a funny thing. It's a very subtle, um, and it's only two minutes. But we look at each other afterwards and we smile, and we're happy to see each other because that means we're we're, we're all good for that day, and and. Uh, then we say aloha, and then we meet up again 7 o'clock the next day.
4: Now, Stephen, I understand that you're a retired nurse. How long were you working as a nurse?
3: I was 40 years as a nurse. During my period as a nurse, we had uh, pandemics, but nothing like COVID-19. So the age that I am now, I can't imagine being able to cope with that kind of pressure. I, I take my hats off. They're all frontline workers. Just They're all just so brave to never have given up.
4: You've been at it every night since March 12th. What would a normal day look like for you? What would you need in order to retire this practice?
3: Oh, we're going to get to July 4th. That's what President Biden said, maybe a day to shoot for to symbolize our independence from virus. And I think that's a good goal. But frankly, we'll probably continue afterwards because I don't want to forget the over half a million people that have perished. It's just we can't do that. I can't do that. And it's too easy to forget. Humans are just, we have that tendency to forget. And I, I refuse, I'm refusing to forget. So I'll, I'll continue to do it. I don't think there's an end point. It's good for me. It's good for my spirit to go out and literally just spend two minutes clapping and whistling. <laughs> That's two minutes. to see you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.
0: That was Stephen Scott Hosaka of Manoa. He leads a nightly chorus of bells and claps to show support for health care workers. And you heard the full two minutes of bells and whistles in real time in that conversation. Stephen and his neighbors will be out there tonight. Take a drive through Manoa to hear them live, or better yet, start your own chorus with your neighbors. This week we've been celebrating innovation in our schools, and today we go out in the marketplace. The Natural Energy and Tech Park on the Big Island is one of only two places in the world that is using new solar technology to manufacture reusable plastic products that normally would be imported into our state. Think water tanks or septic tanks. We talked to Laurence Sambardier, Deputy Director of the Natural Energy Laboratory of Hawaii, and Carl Von Kries of Light Manufacturing about a green innovation project on the Kona side of the Big Island.
7: So, the Natural Energy Laboratory of Hawaii, uh, we administer the Hawaii Ocean Sciences and Technology Park, and we are ideally situated for solar projects. And We have a variety of uh, natural assets, um, including the deep-sea water, um, but the solar resources here are really abundant. Um, they're one of the highest in the U.S. In fact, they're about as as generous as the solar resources in Phoenix, Arizona. And so we've had a variety of solar projects over the years. Um, one of them was the one that you visited, Catherine, um, the sole Focused concentrated photovoltaic um, project. But we've had others. Um, we've had a concentrated solar um, a CSP um, project on four acres, um, which has been repurposed now um, to a uh, desalination uh, project. We've also had a variety of uh, PV projects, energy storage um, projects, and of course, the one we're the most known for is OTEC ocean thermal energy conversion. And uh, this uh, latest project uh, from light manufacturing, we're really excited um, to see them come on board. It's a uh, solar manufacturing project.
0: And Carl, jump in here because sure. I understand that original project that I visited, you know, many moons ago, was taken down to make way for your factory.
8: Yeah. So light manufacturing is a bit of a twist on the traditional what what people think of as the most common application of solar. You hear solar, and your mind almost automatically fills in electric, right? Solar panels, PV, photovoltaics, which is all great. Um, but what we do is different. We're using concentrated solar thermal energy heat to uh, replace the use of natural gas or fossil fuels in industrial processes. Specifically, our first uh, application is for the molding of large, durable plastic objects, specifically things like water tanks. Um, so we have a, a 50 heliostat system that concentrates up to 100,000 watts in real time of solar heat on a mold that rotates with um, food-grade plastic inside of it, and that's melted. 100% of the plastic is melted into a large water tank. So we can do this without the use of fossil fuels, and we can do it um, with factory units that are small and deployable to great places like our new location at Nelha, which is, in fact, the the second place in the world that this technology has been deployed. And so we're really grateful to be there, and it's been, uh, you know, the staff and the team have been super helpful. And uh, as Laurent says, the uh, solar Availability is just fantastic, so we're on the Big Island and we're happy to be here.
0: And so you just launched recently. How's it
8: been going? Uh, It's been going great. Um, Again, because under the NELHA umbrella, you know that organization can handle a lot of the permitting issues and sort of the the complexities of that interfacing with government with the state. Um, That's been fantastic. The staff has been super supportive, and the site itself is just fantastic as well because it's. it's, has really good solar availability and we've been able to set up in you know the new factory in a matter of a few weeks and we've been making 290 and 500 gallon water tanks uh, already in quantity with uh, larger products coming online soon
0: so these water tanks are these for use in residential homes or are they more for uh, commercial applications
8: all of the above these are great for catchment you know water storage classic applications and you know one of the reasons we're on the big island is because there's a lot of water catchment, needed there. And there's a lot of other applications that we're looking forward to, like septic uh, tank use or replacing of cesspits uh, with with septic with these molded products. So it's it's a good environment. There's a lot of demand for what we can make. Uh, and again, the solar availability is super high. So we, we looked at it as a perfect second location to deploy to, and it's gone really well. So, so- we're, we're uh, happy to be there right by the Gateway Center, uh, which is also a fantastic facility.
0: So it's really cutting-edge technology, and, Lawrence, maybe you can talk about that. I mean, because when so- there's something new, a lot of times there aren't the regulatory steps, you know, because it is a new animal, and maybe they aren't sure about emissions or, or whatever.
7: You know, was that difficult? Well, what is great about light manufacturing's technology is that it, is, it has an aim to be very sustainable, and it uses just solar So, you know, even though it does use plastic, which is, you know, something that people look at and sometimes frown upon, but there is no doubt that uh, plastic tanks are extremely valuable for septic systems as well as for water catchment, all of which are important on the island here. So, you know, it does allow a more sustainable version of these products. It addresses the high cost of shipping, which is now, you know, carbon footprints decrease drastically because we're not shipping from the mainland at this point. And we hope that at some point um, we'll be able to address, in some sense, the waste challenges on the Big Island in the sense that these tanks could be using or reusing plastics, which would otherwise go to our landfill. So there's a little bit of R&D that would need to happen with respect to that, but we do hope that we would be able to use and reuse plastics.
8: Right. You know, the emissions, you know, when you when you rotationally mold plastics, you're just warming them to the point where they can fuse together. So we're not burning plastic or or Creating emissions from the from that process itself. It's very uh, sustainable and benign. And then, of course, replacing the use of fossil fuels entirely. Right? We're not burning uh, natural gas or kerosene or anything. Um, and so you have a huge cost savings because those things don't have to be imported into the island economy. And you also get rid of all the pollution associated with that. You know, no matter how cleanly burning fossil fuels are, you're still contributing to greenhouse gas warming, and you're In some cases, creating particulate emissions, carbon monoxide, all kinds of things. All of that goes 100% to zero with our process, so that's great on its face. And again, these are durable, long-lasting products, not things like ephemeral plastics, you know, that are used once and and disposed of. And as Laurence alluded to, we are working hard to look at ways to ingest some post-consumer waste into our molding process. Now, we're not there yet, but we're working really hard and hope to have stuff this year that we can bring to the island as well. So with that, you have the possibility of sustainable factories, extremely deployable at small and medium scale, that can go out throughout the Pacific Island chain and provide access to these really important health-improving products like water tanks, potentially septic, and potentially, this isn't there yet, ingesting post consumer waste into some of these useful reusable products that's the goal and that's the dream and we're doing some of that already right here on the big island which has been which has been very exciting for the whole team
0: well, I know that the Big Island has an uh, issue with the cesspools. So, yeah, if, if you can provide another alternative for that, you know, with that yeah, uh, there's, 2050 there's deadline. There's on
8: the on the Big Island alone of, I think, about 100,000 throughout the Hawaiian island chain. So 50,000 are just on the Big Island. And that's, that's a real problem if you have to be bringing all those in from the mainland or molding them with fossil fuels locally but you know we're we're here to learn also you know kathleen so one thing is we're hoping to hear from the public and saying look if you know about products that are relatively large plastic durable objects that you know 200 to 500 of these are used needed a year we want people to reach out to us at the bigisland.lm.solar website and tell us about that because you know we're here to try to serve local needs and we're you know wanting to discover what applications there are for our technology we know about water tanks we want to hear what else, perhaps in agriculture or fisheries or other areas. So it's uh, it's going to be an exciting year of of us learning and then working to supply what the community needs.
0: I recall, you know, there was a time when the vog was particularly bad and the acid rain i think was causing a problem with the water catchment systems you know that had nails and you know the, mm-hmm. the, the rust was creating a, an issue for the water but i imagine that if it, if you've got a plastic container that that would uh, that wouldn't be a problem
8: yeah it's it's true uh, polyethylene that we use is fda compliant food grade material so we're bringing on just really high quality stuff that could be used for toys or for you know for foodware that kind of thing and so you have a really high quality, very chemically inert material that doesn't corrode or rust or have those issues. And again, you know, anything has uh, costs, right? You know, aluminum has costs, metals, wood, no matter what you're making things of, you have to look at the whole life cycle cost of, of using that material. And so we're very aware of some of the issues around plastics, particularly in the single use world. But, you know, our our technology is able to use the current plastics that are available, like these food grade materials I described and also future plastics that we hope to see be plant derived, starch derived, that kind of thing. So we're not wedded to stuff that's coming out of oil. We're looking to all kinds of of inputs, including bioplastics and again post consumer stuff in the future.
0: Well when I was reading up on the potential products that you might be producing, kayaks caught my eye.
8: Yeah, we've thought of things large planters, architectural features, you know, and we know there's you know there's a number of constituencies in the community that have their own waste streams and their own requirements. So, you know, we're going to be interested in hearing from the resort and hotel communities, again, agriculture, fisheries. We think each of these constituencies has waste streams that they are you know, unique to them and also product needs that are unique to them. So we're hoping to get to a closed circle, you know, a closed loop economy with some of these potential partners where we can both alleviate the waste stream issues, but also potentially bring products that are having to be imported and then produce them locally. And obviously, we have to go step by step. So we're going to pick the, the things that make the most sense to do first. But uh, we think there's a lot of potential there, so we're we're just excited to to hear from folks and and learn what there is that we can contribute to.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. You know, if uh, folks are getting into aquaponics, those tubs, you know, whether they be large or small, that uh, maybe that's something uh, that's in your future.
8: Yeah, exactly, we've heard that. Yeah, and and again, this is you know, Hawaii is really the first, and particularly the Big Island is the first step that we anticipate to be many locations and that includes, you know, through the rest of the Hawaiian chain out to Tahiti, possibly Guam, other places that have similar logistics uh, challenges, and local waste streams, local, local demand for useful, durable products that we may be able to meet. So it's, uh, it's just the beginning of what we think is going to be an expansive rollout. We're excited to to start. <laughs> and,
7: and so, and Carl, you might want to add to that um, the, the purpose of, one of the purposes of, of situating light manufacturing project at NELHA is the ability for folks to come and visit the demonstration, you know, see it in the ground. So in action, um, so yeah, that's, absolutely. That's, yeah, um, that's always right. a good thing to do and and you can see it actually from the highway on Queen Manu highway as you drive both north and south, um, you should be able to see the heliostats concentrating um, the solar power onto the containerized rotational molding system
8: that's that's right and we're we're organizing tours with uh, coordination with the gateway center so that our, our team can uh, have some idea of uh, you know when folks are coming by so there's going to be a, a sign up process where we can group people together and get it kind of in an organized way. But, yeah, we're definitely going to be encouraging folks to come by and learn about the process. And so there'll be a sign-up link for tours through us to the Gateway Center uh, on our website. We have a specific to Hawaii uh, website, which is bigisland.lm.solar, not .com, by the way. (laughs) Uh, So we're looking forward to meeting people in person.
0: That was Carl von Creese of Light Manufacturing and Laurent Simardier of the Natural Energy Lab of Hawaii. They were talking about a new green venture underway now on the Big Island.
2: Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Energy, committed to helping nonprofits reduce their energy use during COVID-19 with energy-efficient lighting and HVAC systems, hawaiienergy.com slash businesses
5: We all need to understand why certain things happen, so we come up with stories.
6: It's a way to try to extract order and regularity from what might otherwise seem like just one event after another, something that's very disorganized and unsettling.
5: Our drive to make sense of the world and how it can sometimes lead us astray. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR.
3: Beginning this evening at 7, following says you.
0: In our Mauka de Makai segment, we introduce you to a University of Hawaii atmospheric scientist who's written a scientific paper and created a smartphone app centered on his desire to share Hawaii's anui nui, the beautiful ever present rainbow. Professor Steven Businger talked to the conversations Lillian Song about his passion project that was conceived at the start of the pandemic.
2: I have always been interested in atmospheric phenomena, optics like coronas and halos and glories. And I study rainbows because they are so inspiring. And I think that in this time where we've all been in the doldrums from COVID, that we can use a little inspiration. So I thought an article on the best rainbows on earth would be a, a good thing. I was so amazed when I when I came to the Hawaiian Islands to see so many rainbows here. I grew up in the Seattle area where we have plenty of rain, but we don't have the right combination that you need in order to get a rainbow.
9: When you were putting this together and you're looking not only at the cultural references to rainbows, but then you pulled it into your wheelhouse. You're a scientist and what can you tell us about what causes a rainbow?
2: Well you need to have rain and you need to have sunshine and for that to happen the best circumstance is to have a small isolated shower so that the Sun can enter from the side and illuminate the rain to produce a rainbow. If you are facing away from the Sun, directly away from the Sun, so that you can see your own shadow, then if you take the head of your shadow and look up 42 degrees, that's where the rainbow will be. And it'll form an arc around your head. Friend is standing right next to you and he's looking at the shadow of his head. His rainbow is gonna be an arc that is centered on his shadow and therefore my rainbow and his rainbow are actually coming from different set of raindroplets. So for the light of the rainbow to enter your eye, it has to be 42 degrees away from the head of your shadow. And everywhere 42 degrees away from the head of your shadow is a circle that uh, has a a diameter of 42 degrees.
9: You know, I think I'm more of a hands-on learning kind of a brain. I so want to see this in action.
2: Yeah. I've created some animations that your listeners could go see. If they go to rainbowchase.com and click on About Rainbows, there will be a couple of animations that illustrate exactly how that works with the sun angle and the viewer and the size of the rainbow above the horizon.
9: Oh, that is a great tool. Animations, very helpful. And on your website, you have another link that I think listeners will find very helpful called the using the Rainbow Chase app tell me more about that
2: yeah Rainbow Chase is an app that a friend of mine Paul Sin, and I have been working to develop together with a company in Hawaii called Ikezo that does smartphone app development and the idea came to us because we wanted to take a photograph of a full circle rainbow for which you need to be in the air And so we chartered a helicopter, and then we went out and we went looking for rainbows. And I realized that if you know where the rain is from a radar and you know where the sun is, then you can predict where the circle rainbow is going to appear. So that's basically how this idea was born, that if we have radar data and we have some satellite data and we know the sun angle, then we can put all that into an app, and uh, make make it available to users. And you could go out and chase these rainbows.
9: How much memory does my phone need to to run this app?
2: Not very much, because all that data is pulled into a central location. So it's not a huge app. And it also provides um, beautiful satellite photographs and radar data, images. And uh, it's kind of a weather app as well. But the main function is to bring more rainbows into your life.
9: So you were the intellectual driver. You came up with the conceptual development of the app, and then EKSO is the app developer here locally. You will be bringing the Rainbow Chase app to a bigger market. How far down the road would that be?
2: That's a good question, and, and I'm not sure exactly what the answer is. We're, we're first going to expand to the other island uh, in Hawaii. Um, And then we're going to uh, see how much compute power that requires, how big the server needs to be. Most of it's done in the cloud on Google servers. Isn't that funny? Rainbow chase in the cloud. And then we will be expanding to the mainland, probably starting from the West Coast and heading over, gradually bringing in more data. And we'll, we'll see how it goes. We don't charge anything for this app, and you know if the costs become too high, then we will have to think about how, how we're gonna move forward on it. But um, at the moment, we're, we're quite motivated to keep it free because that's the whole point. There are other places that have good rainbows. For example, the British Isles in the summertime, and also Iceland in the summer has very beautiful rainbows. So, there are other places. It's just that Hawaii has so many things that make it conducive for rainbows. We have mountains which create rain showers. At the same time, the air flowing down on the lee side causes the clouds to evaporate and be clear. That's why Honolulu is so sunny. So, when the sun in the late afternoon shines back on the koala, you see rainbows across uh, all those showers that are being. Created by the uplift by the mountains, so mountains are a big factor in having uh, these, uh, you know, the state be be so full of rainbows. Also, when the wind's not blowing so strongly, we have the islands heat up, and there's a sea breeze that forms, and that also brings uh, air up the mountain ridges and creates rainfall, and that produces beautiful afternoon rainbows. Our air is really clear. And that makes our rainbows more vibrant. And the clear air is because we're so removed from pollution sources. We don't have a big continent that produces dust and pollen. And so uh, our clouds have fewer aerosols, fewer particles, if you will, for for the the rain droplets to form on. And so the droplets tend to be a little bigger because they're competing for less with other droplets. And those larger droplets have an easier time of growing through collision and coalescence. And they fall out of very, very shallow, small clouds. So Hawaii is very special with this warm rain process that allows small clouds to produce precipitation and rainbows. So it's a perfect setup to allow for the best rainbows on the planet.
9: What's what's your favorite rainbow?
2: My favorite rainbow, I, I love the circle rainbows. Uh, uh, when you can look down and it's just it, the entire hemisphere that you're looking at is just all rainbow, enormous double rainbow. It's quite phenomenal. Mm. That would be my favorite.
9: Rainbows definitely do uplift the spirits. I shared with you the story of this past weekend. My mom and I were out in the community garden and a rainbow was hanging out there Kind of low. So my mom gets out into the field and she starts dancing, kind of chasing the rainbow. One of those memories that will kind of stay with you because of the rainbow.
2: That's a wonderful story. (laughs) I love that one.
9: Stephen, it's so true. What you observe and what you write about in different societies, rainbows are a good thing, a positive. You mentioned that to see a circular rainbow, you do have to be up in the air in a helicopter and a plane. Yeah. When we're on the ground though, we do see double rainbows. Now what does that phenomenon Well,
2: with? yeah, you have a primary rainbow and then the higher rainbow is a secondary rainbow. And that's produced by light that enters the drop and reflects twice, two times at the back of the drop and then comes out. And it comes out at an angle of 51 degrees from the head of your shadow. So the secondary bow is above the primary bow. It's a little bit um, more faint than the primary bow because you lose a little light at the back of the drop with each reflection.
9: Hmm. And another rainbow phenomena, I understand, is called the one-colored rainbow?
2: Yeah, there are uh, red rainbows and there are white rainbows. The red rainbows happen close to sunset or could be close to sunrise, when there's just a little bit of air pollution, it could be fog, and then the green and the blue light get scattered out, and what's left is the orange and the red light, and under those circumstances, the rainbow just has the orange and red colors, and it doesn't have the rest of the colors, so you end up with a very red looking rainbow. For the white rainbow, it's different if the the rain droplets are are very small, they're more like cloud droplets, then the uh, the physics of the the refraction and reflection ends up being a little blurry and all the colors overlap and produce a white rainbow. And sometimes that's called a cloud bowl or a fog bowl, depending on what you're seeing the phenomenon in. And you often see that also um, when you're on a mountaintop looking down at a cloud with the sun behind you, or perhaps in an airplane you can see these cloud boats sometimes. And and, they are white, and the Hawaiians believe that they're an omen for prosperity. So it's very good to go out and look for white rainbows.
0: Ah, good to know. That was the University of Hawaii Professor uh, Stephen Businger, who he has just published a scientific paper on Hawaii's special conditions that make us the rainbow capital of the world. We will have links to his article and his Rainbow Chase website and app. Uh, Businger will be a guest on Science Friday tomorrow. We hear that Ira Flato loves rainbows. For today. Up tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa will be in for Aloha Friday. She'll be looking at how bookstores are faring. Give us some feedback. Got questions about vaccines or anything else you may have heard on our air? Call our back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.